0: welcome to this week's episode of Pot on Point, a podcast about sports, business, and the business of sports. I'm your host, Mike McPhee, and I'm very excited for this episode as we had the honor and privilege to speak with Coach Matt Doherty. Before we speak with him, let's just cover a bit of his impressive background. Matt played and coached basketball at the University of North Carolina. He started on the 1982 National Championship team with NBA future greats Michael Jordan and James Worthy and he was led by the legendary coach, Dean Smith. After playing, Matt eventually found his way into coaching, first as an assistant at Davidson and then at Kansas. Matt launched his head coaching career at Notre Dame and eventually was called home to be the head coach at his alma mater, North Carolina. He led UNC for three years, where he was named AP National Coach of the Year in 2001. After a painful firing at UNC, he moved on to head jobs at FAU and SMU he hung up his whistle as a basketball coach, Matt has entered the world of media and leadership coaching, working with ESPN, several radio shows, and he has also held a leadership role in the Atlantic 10 Conference. Last thing, and very timely, Matt has authored a book on leadership titled Rebound, From Pain to Passion. As you can see, Matt's background is truly impressive, and I think you'll really enjoy his takes on the business angles to major college basketball, his career, and his take on leadership. It's an honor and privilege to welcome Matt Doherty to the show. Hey, welcome, Matt. Where do we find you today? You find me?
1: Where do you find me? You find me like you find everybody else on Zoom. Um, <laughs> so it's amazing. It's amazing how uh, Zoom has become... A, a verb, you know, it's like uh, Xerox was and Google and now you got a zoom. Um, and uh, but I am located outside of Charlotte in the town of Mooresville. More um, Mooresville is known for NASCAR and Lowe's. And uh, <laughs> okay. we're about 10, 10 miles from Davidson College where Bob McKillop oh, and, and Steph Curry, uh Curry, uh, you know, played and coached.
0: Beautiful. I think uh, you're a former high school coach way back in the day, too, right? There you we did go. some
1: homework, Mike. A little, it's good, little to, bit see. E. It's good <laughs> to see you read the, you read the bio. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there we go. So, so, Coach, what areas are you focused on today, and, and how did you evolve into kind of what you're working on? Yeah, um, I think my focus
1: now is uh, leadership development. I'm an executive coach for Vistage, I was ha- I had my own coaching practice, which I still use for one-on-ones and corporate talks. The Doherty Coaching Practice. Um, I talk a lot about le- learn and grow, and that this all stemmed from being forced to resign uh, at North Carolina in 2003, uh, after being the national coach there in 2001 at my alma mater, and uh, that that put me on a leadership journey where I. I'm coming out with a book, it's called Rebound from Pain to Passion. And the pain was my loss of my job and due to my lack of leadership. And as I studied leadership and went on that journey, leadership became my passion. And so I'm thirsty to learn about leadership. I love talking about leadership. Uh, I love studying it and I love teaching it. So I teach it through my coaching practice and also as a Vistage chair which uh, Vistage is the oldest and largest executive coaching organization in the world.
0: Well, let's dig a little bit into your, your background. We want to talk a little bit about the business side of college sports, and then we'll talk some about that book that you mentioned. I think we'll have a, a fun discussion there. So, Coach, back in the day, you um, started your career at Notre Dame, and it's and, and arguably the coach is the de facto CEO of the basketball, the basketball team, right? And as you look at that role t- back when you started at Notre Dame, and compare it to now, how has that role evolved? What's making for a successful coach or CEO or leader of a program now as compared to when you first uh, got into it?
1: Well, I think that uh, the biggest challenges now are uh, the one and done, uh, the transfer portal, and social media, uh, and then soon to be name, image, and likeness. I think those are all things that have made the road to be consistently successful very, very challenging. You know, you have someone like Zion Williamson who shows up at Duke with a million followers. (laughs) Well, I mean, these guys come in and and the buzzword for a lot of these guys in the last several years has been my brand, you know, branding. You know, don't ruin my brand. You got to help my brand. So what does that mean? You know, and, and and listen, in some cases it's real. Like Zion Williamson, it's real. It was well-earned. And then everything I saw about Zion Williamson, he was as grounded as a kid could be with a million followers. But there's a lot of kids who aren't as good as Zion, who, you know, have a lot of followers and have this brand and have never been told no before. <laughs> And sometimes a college coach is the first one to tell them no. And when you tell a player, no, who's never been told no before, who has a million followers, he's not going to be happy. And maybe his parents aren't happy and maybe his AAU coach isn't happy. And then maybe he wants to transfer or go pro um, before he's ready. So those scenarios, those issues, you know, weren't there 20 years ago to this level by any means.
0: So Matt, it's, it's really interesting. The differences, you know, it all point to roster management and not necessarily things between the lines. So with the complexities that arise from transfer portals, one and done, et cetera, does that make the relationships between players and coaches just more transactional in nature? You know, that's
1: a great question. I think it's hard. It, it is definitely hard because there are layers, a lot more layers between the coach and the player in the recruiting process when it gets on campus uh, and then the time demands, you know, coaches get pulled away, players get pulled away, players have so much to do now, uh, you know, and their calendar gets full because they've got to um, go to practice, go to class, go to study hall, go to uh, training table, go to the weight room. And so, uh, and coaches have so many more responsibilities now that uh, with the media, And social media, and so many things to monitor. So uh, it is a challenge. Um, But that's where, as a leader, you have to prioritize and um, delegate.
0: Coach, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the impact of the pandemic on college sports and and specifically this season. We all know, notably, the cancellation of last year's tournament impacted a lot of livelihoods, uh, impacted a lot of revenue for the overall org. um, And then from your perspective, though, what types of challenges have arisen for coaches that maybe sports fans don't necessarily know about? What are they facing have, that have, they're not talking about?
1: We have no idea. Um, I, I, I do some games for ESPN. I, I only have uh, one scheduled and it was canceled. We're, we're going to replay it. But uh, Furman against UNC Greensboro. And we were talking to the coaches the night before the game, although the next day that game was canceled because of COVID. And um, in talking to the coaches, you know, they one program was taking three buses to a game instead of one bus so they can socially distance on the bus. They were wearing masks on the bus. They stopped and, and they couldn't eat on the bus. They had to eat you know, when they left the arena or they had to stop somewhere and, and socially distance and eat, Um, you know, the, the, the practices, you know, you couldn't, you bring your hands in um, the spacing on the benches. um, You know, I talked to Bob McKillop at Davidson. He and I are very close. I played for Bob in high school and worked for him at Davidson when he first got there and they were playing great. All of a sudden they had a, a, someone in the organization popped a top positive COVID test and then they, they can't play for 14 days. They can't practice for five days. They can only do some Zoom calls and individual work. So you think of the rhythm, you think of all of a sudden, you know, not being able to practice, then having to the practice and get ready for a game. What about injury? Like it is hard to get in shape, but you can get out of shape in three days. You can get out of basketball shape in three days. And now all of a sudden you're supposed to jump back and, and play. So I think that's another reason why you see such erratic play during the season Um, because of the COVID Uh, the, the, you know, they didn't have an off season. They didn't have a preseason. They didn't have to have exhibition games And when you're talking about some of the higher profile teams, like a Duke and um, a Kentucky that rely on freshmen so much, there's a reason why they're struggling.
0: Yeah. You know, we're, we're all athletes and know that uh, we're, we're products of schedules and we're products of a rhythm and a product of a flow. And it sounds like that's disrupted daily intraday, every hour, I'm sure.
1: you just think of the disappointment too. Like, yeah, you want to play some teams that travel to a location. St. Louis top 25 team hadn't played in like, I don't know, a month. They get on a plane land in Richmond, Virginia, supposed to play Richmond, Richmond pop, pops a positive COVID test and they've got to fly back to St. Louis. No ball game. Yeah. Just think of, think of the money that it takes. Like, I, right. I have to do a COVID test for, um, for ESPN. So I go and I'm doctor in the neighborhood that we know does them, and it's $120 a pop. So multiply that times 20 people in your travel party. Having to do that, I don't know, three times a week,
0: it's a Incredible lot of money. Expenses. In your estimation, should they be playing these games or should they be pushing this season out a bit? What's your, what's your take there?
1: Oh, man. I thought it would have been wise to start the season in January um, after football kind of figured it out and after the NBA went through their you know bubble season, that now you have more data and more experiences um, to draw upon. Mm -hmm. I thought that would have made sense. And I think there were a couple of coaches. I think one in particular, Rick Pitino, was talking about that. And You know, why not start in January and finish in, you know, May? I thought that would have made sense and and see how it goes.
2: Yeah, one of the interesting things that the NBA has showed is that, you know, bubbles work. And Mike and I were often wondering, you know, why don't more leagues adopt a a bubble play? I mean, I guess a conference could have maybe – you know, shortened it or made like their own little tournament that lasted maybe a couple of weeks, but, you know, contain it in one area. Uh, it seems like they just sort of let things loose. Um, and certainly I mean, maybe it was too difficult to coordinate among the conferences, but do do you, was that ever under, under consideration by anybody?
1: You know, I, I, I think it's been talked about, but really um, when you have different schools and I worked in the Atlantic 10 conference for a couple of years, You have different schools in different parts of the country with different needs, uh, uh, different resources. You know, are you going to, you know, let's say the ACC. Okay, so where's the bubble going to be? That makes sense to have it in Charlotte or Greensboro. Well, do they have a facility that can control that? Well, let's say you go to Orlando. They've already had it set up. Who's going to fund that? I mean, you're talking about hotel rooms and food for a party of 20 times 15 teams for how long? Then you got to bring academic advisors because the kids are going to take classes online. You know, the funding for that is ridiculous. And, you know, you're pulling these kids now away from family, you know, if, if they could get to family, I think that's a lot to ask. I think it was a lot to ask the NBA players. And I'm not sure they would want to do it again. So I think that uh, that's probably the reason it would be difficult to pull off for college to do it. Now, could they do it for, you know, their conference tournaments? Yeah. The NCAA is talking about doing that for the NCAA tournament. play. It's all played. All rounds are played in Indianapolis. But it's um, a little tougher, I think, to manage – Younger people, and again, I don't think that, uh, you know, the NCAA, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe the schools will have the resources that the NBA teams and the NBA had for the bubble.
0: Interesting, you mentioned your, your time there with Atlantic 10. Football season showed us there's a lot of uh, disparity at the conference level and how they organize and how we saw football had different teams saying when they were going to play or they were going to hold off in those things. Can you spot, shine a spotlight a little bit on the conference? What are some of the drivers at the conference? Well, outside of pandemic, what are some of the business drivers at the conference level? The presidents choose the commissioner and the commissioner,
1: you know, executes the bylaws of the league. You know, they're the ones that have to pass down punishment and give direction and organize conference schedules and communicate with the coaches and the ADs and the presidents but it's basically driven by the presidents. So for example, the big 10, you know, they weren't going to play because the big 10 is elite league and high profile academics. And we're going to take the high, we're going to take the high road until we're not going to take the high road. And they see the (laughs) sec and the big 12 and the ACC playing and being on TV and bowl games and they're playing games and, and they're the, the, then all of a sudden the parents and the media start pushing back. If we've learned anything in 2020, it's the power of social media. It's the power of the people. You know, With social media, all of a sudden these groups, whether it be from Black Lives Matter to uh, Alt-Left group and Alt-Right group, uh, the parents of Big Ten players, if a leader doesn't respect those entities, they're, they're very short-sighted. You know, the intent, um, a friend of mine, and that's is in the book, Scott Cavage, who played football in North Carolina, talks about intent. You know, you have intent in your message, but your message is going to be interpreted by the masses. And then once they get a hold of it, um, you're no longer in charge. So you're when you're dialing up your message, you have to think about the masses before you pull the trigger on a decision. And how do you do that? It takes time and you better test the waters. You know, do you lob that out there? You know I know some people kind of have beta tests with different ideas, and you guys were at Silicon Valley, you Absolutely. know so you run a beta test and throw it out there. What would you think if we played? what do you think if we don't played and you know people think, well, that's weak you know you're 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 not showing leadership, but no, you really are because you know true leaders value the people they're leading more than themselves, and they've got to take their opinions into play before they make a key decision. I'm I'm reading at the direction of a friend of mine, Jerry Byrne, the lacrosse coach at Harvard. Um, I spoke to their team and they, they were reading uh, Endurance, the book about uh, Ernest Shackleton, who did the expedition to the South pole and they didn't make it. And, you know, you had all these men and they were in four months of darkness and they were in ice and, you know, they worried about dying and, no one died and you know how he was a servant leader and how he took the pulse of the people before making the decision now at the end you got to make the right decision you got to make some tough decisions but if you're not taking the temperature before you make a decision nowadays there could be some serious backlash
0: i really like that angle on leadership um let's let's take a little another turn with this conference angle that you've got um we've seen such huge disparity uh, across the football landscape, but basketball has got its own unique disparity. You know, 300 teams playing major college basketball, certainly have your power teams. From your perspective, are the disparities across the college basketball landscape sustainable? You know, you've got the, the Kentuckys and the, and, and you've got the Dukes playing uh. with one set of revenue, if you will. And then you've got the Atlantic 10s or the Dayton's and the others that are pulling from a different revenue pool and, and recruiting a different athlete is are we sustainable with this current operating model?
1: Um, I think that's gotten too big. I don't think there should be 365 division one schools or whatever the number. I think that's too many. I think it's too many schools try to be division one and they don't have the resources to sustain it. And what they do is they put their athletes in harm's way because, you know, if the athletes aren't eating right, traveling right, getting the right academic support, they're not going to be as successful, and losing can beat you down. So I think that there should be less Division One schools. But I do like the broader array of schools, and that can be done in basketball because it's not as much a contact sport as football, where a smaller school can get physically beaten up, where in basketball, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, but you still like the David and Goliath. You know, you still like Princeton beating UCLA. You still like those upsets in March, especially. So I think that there should be a healthy breadth of Division I schools. I just don't think there should be 365 of them.
0: Let's zoom in on the athletes. NILs on the landscape, name, image, and likeness. Our listeners all know that. Your listeners for your radio show and your audiences all know that. What's your sp- perspective there? A lot of movement this year. We expect some legislation. Schools are going to have to respond. Conferences may take a lead. What's, what's your take on that landscape right now?
1: Well, um, I think that they should uh, get paid for name, image, and likeness, but I think it should be governed and monitored and run through the school, the athletic department. Um, I don't think that agents and third parties should get involved because now you're just opening up a can of worms for illegal inducements. Um, you know, if I, you know, I'm be, being recruited by, um, XYZ university and they say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get you a Mercedes dealership here and you'll get a car and hundred K a year. Well, I'm probably going to go to that school, you know, <laughs> um, or at least consider it where another school can't offer you that or won't offer you that. So I think that, um, you know, is that fair? But if it's run through the school, I think that'll be a little bit more streamlined. And um, I do think the athletes should get things for their name, image, and likeness. However, there's going to be a lot of players that are disappointed because they're not as popular as they think they are. <clears throat> However, I remember my freshman or sophomore year, let's say my sophomore year at North Carolina, and I go into the bookstore and there's a basketball jersey with the number 44 on it. That's my number and it's for sale. And I'm thinking that's pretty cool. And then I thought more about it. I'm like, Whoa, (laughs) they're taking advantage of my ability. Mm -hmm. I should get a cut of that. You know, again, where, where's the breaking point? Where's the tipping point? You know, it's going to be a heck of a headache for college coaches. And, you know, if you're at a big school and you have somebody that, A car dealer it says hey yeah i'll give your starting five uh access to mercedes and they do a ball signing event for me you know once a month yeah i'll do that well heck you know if i'm the coach i'm gonna do that
2: matt my quick follow-up question to that is how is it any different today i mean to be perfectly honest i mean there are programs that you know break these rules anyway today I've um, been doing it for years,
1: Vlade. been doing it for years, Vlade. exactly.
2: Um, so, so my point is, uh, you, would, you would affect some of these market forces to come in and kind of play a role in this decision-making. But at the same time, you would just you know, make it all open, right? There would be a market for it. And I, I, would, I would argue that maybe a, you know, a, a market perspective could then put some of these kids in their place as well.
1: Yeah. No, I, listen, I think you might be right. I think it's fair to say now who represents the kid? Is it an agent? So now, you know, we've tried to avoid agents. Now you're letting agents jump in from, you know, they're there anyway. It's like prohibition, right? It's like marijuana. It's like gambling. If we legalize it, we can manage it better and we can tax it. So maybe, you know, maybe there's a happy medium. Maybe I'm too old school. Maybe I just realize the headaches that coaches are going to deal with um, because it's just another thing. But come back from the players and some announcers will be like, "Listen, the coaches are getting paid five million dollars a year. Hey, man, deal with it."
2: You know, right? Well, well, Mike and I were talking about that. You know, some some of the ads are now getting paid in into the millions, and we were we were saying you know, is this what a, you know, a hundred million dollar, you know, revenue company would pay its CEO anyway. And like, yeah, you know, a hundred million dollar company has hundreds of employees and, you know, you have to deal with HR and benefits and all of these other things. So, yeah, you know, that, I guess that was sort of the, the the precursor to this was our question. The first question was that, you know, the the coach is the the, de facto CEO. And I think, you know, he will continue or she will continue to play that role, right?
1: Yes, Thanks. definitely, and and I think that uh, although when you look at the, it's really disjointed, you know, there's, there's part of me, and I've said this before, college athletics shouldn't be on college campuses, because it's a culture that doesn't fit, okay? The other thing, when you look at the org chart of a university, and you have the president and or chancellor at the top, then you have the provost, and you have And then you have an AD and then the basketball coach is technically, technically, you know, probably like the fourth or fifth level down from the president, but they're the most powerful people on campus (laughs) in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. You talk about a dynamic and then the boosters are the investors in a company. So a booster can easily Want to out the chancellor, this the real CEO of the university. So you know, technically, a basketball coach is like a VP, right? But it might has the most power in that org chart, and that's why it's so damn dysfunctional.
0: And in terms of football, they might be the highest paid public official in the state, right? We see that about that southeast a lot, right?
1: He, He 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 is. It's incredible. Yeah,
0: Matt, let's pivot. Let's talk a little bit about this big milestone you have here on the horizon here in early March. You're publishing your first book called Rebound. What was your idea about? What was your book idea about? And why were you compelled to write it? For whom was it intended?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, um, selfishly it was for me. Um, uh, When I was forced to resign in 2003, you know, I started to, you know, at, at some point in the last 17, 18 years, I would put notes to my iPad and say, I'm going to write a book. And it was really for therapy, really to get some thoughts out on paper and and get emotions out of my gut. And, um, I'd start and stop, start and stop, but it was really kind of like writing a diary, you know, uh, journal. And, uh, then I did some corporate talks last year, year and a half ago, I started my coaching practice and I was speaking at various corporations and most people would say, Hey, do you have a book? And I'm like, I don't have a book. And they're saying, you should write a book. And I'm like, you know, and I I didn't want to come across as like somebody worthy of a book because, you know, it seems like everybody's writing a book and, you know, I didn't want to have come across as like a big ego that I have something great to share. But the more I talk to people and, and, confidants, they said, no, it'd be a good idea for you to write a book. You can, you can help some people. And then along the way, help myself. So, um, a friend of mine, Scott Stankiewicz, who I referenced earlier, played at North Carolina, was a quarterback on the football team, had written a book and he connected with me with a publisher. So I really have a team. I have a great publisher and Larry Carpenter. Um, I have a terrific PR, uh, person named Cindy Byrne, I have people who help me with the websites, editing the whole deal, because it's a lot of work. I'm doing the voiceover right now for the audiobook, and it's a lot of work. And, and so if you're going to do it and be intimately involved, it takes time. It's a, it's a heck of a project, but it's a very fulfilling project. My goal was to write this with some background, so people would understand me and how I grew up some stories that would be interesting to you know, anyone, but especially a basketball fan. And then the leadership aspect is I really wanted this to be about the leadership lessons I learned and somebody else can benefit from those leadership lessons because leadership is the most, the least, it's the least formally taught topic in formal education. <laughs> but it's the most important because everything rises and falls with leadership. I don't care what you're talking about, whether it be Apple, you know, and I I love reading that book about Steve jobs, you know, that he got ran out of of Apple and he came back. You know, I talk about Oklahoma, I mean, Alabama football between bear Bryant and Nick Saban. There were a lot of coaches, some successful, some not. And you had Mike price and you had, Shula, and then you had Saban. Well, what's the difference? I mean, Price, Shula had the same university, the same facilities, the same town, the same, you know, pretty much everything, same brand, but Saban took it to another level. Why? Leadership, plain and simple, leadership. I wanted this book to be a guide for people too, to be able to say, okay, I'm going to use it as a reference. I'm taking a new job or I'm hiring somebody. What did Matt say in that book about hiring? What did he say about, um, you know, training? What did he say about managing up? What did he say about core values? What did he say about mission statements? So people can use it as a reference. Um, because, Leadership is a learned behavior. And I learned that studying, you know, after I got let go and I went on a leadership journey and uh, it was the most exciting thing I read was that leadership is a learned behavior. And, you know, we all think, oh, that's a born natural born leader. Yeah, some people are born on second base. Some people are born on third base, but you could be born on first base and still get home.
0: There you go. Super compelling story. I suppose a number of people have read some early copies, even though your launch is here in about a month. What's been some of the early feedback that you've received thus far?
1: Well, I think, you know, some of the things that I like is, is that uh, people, you know, they like the story and understanding my background, because I think that's important is that people need to understand why Why are you, Mike, why are you who you are? Mm -hmm. Vlad, why are you who you are? You know, and a lot of it has your upbringing. You know, your parents, your brothers and sisters, uh, environment you grew up in. And uh, we're all products of that. And, And then obviously the gene pool. But then, you know, your biggest strengths, your biggest weakness, I talk about that all the time. You know, mine was being intense. I was an intense player. But sometimes your biggest strength's your biggest weakness. And so you know being an intense player and being an intense CEO can be a bad thing. And, and so um, I talk about uh, I, I, maybe Vlad will get a joke out of this. I had to make up a name of an Eastern Bloc kid that I, I recruited, and his name's Stevit. Do you know anybody named Stevit?
2: <laughs> yes, I do. Vlad? <laughs> yeah. Do you really? Yeah, do you really. <laughs> Well, Stevan is in not, touch it's with like him? Steven. It's not, it's not a, it's not a very uncommon name. <laughs> okay.
1: So the only, I Googled it and I found it show up in Wisconsin. So I make a story of recruiting this kid, Stevit in Wisconsin and Stevit stands for the six nose of leadership. K N O W S. <laughs> and the first one is you got to know yourself. The second one is you got to know your team the third one is you got to know your environment. The fourth one is you got to know your vision. Then you have to know your industry, be an industry, industry expert. And then the last one is know the truth. You got to mind for the truth. And to me, the most important ones are know yourself and know the truth because we all have blind spots and the only way to get to fill in those blind spots is to have somebody tell you the truth. But that's painful, painful to hear. But you got to create an environment as a leader that is safe for somebody to come to you and say, "You know what, Michael, you're not a good listener. Whenever I, whenever the players talk to you, you're you're looking at your phone, you're looking at your watch, you know, you're fidgeting around. Um, They don't feel comfortable talking to you. Now, you as the head coach, the CEO of the basketball program." You can do a couple of things. You could tell me to go screw off. You can bully me and say, that's not true. No way. My players love me. Or you can say, you know what, Michael? Thank you so much. Thank you for telling me that. I need to hear that because I need to get better. So. I talk about having an assistant coach that has a business card and on the business card, it says truth teller because you should have somebody, at least one person that has the abilities. I was talking to a guy who flew in the military and he said, it's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation to challenge me. You are obligated to challenge me when you think I'm doing something wrong or you have a a different idea. Now, It needs to be done and my core values are respect, trust, commitment, positivity. It needs to be done in a respectful manner. Don't embarrass me in front of the team. Don't embarrass me in front of the staff, but you can tell me in a safe environment, let's say the boardroom, where I'll say everything's game here. You guys have a question, you have an idea, you put it on the table. But when we walk out of this conference room we need to be aligned. So if you say something like, hey, man, hey, coach, I think we should double pick and rolls. And I'll be like, no, that's bullshit. You know, come on. No, no, I think we should. And I've done this, the data, I've studied it. And here's a team that does it. And, you know, their defensive efficiency on doubling pick and rolls is X versus this way. And might get my thoughts going, okay. Get me some, you know, I got to have an open mind. Because now if I do that for you, Michael, then Vlad might have a good idea. And he's not going to be afraid to come to me. But if I stifle you guys, one, I'm not going to create a great working environment. Two, you're not going to be loyal to me. And three, you're not going to grow. Four, like, why the hell did I hire you?
0: I like this. Let's take this angle one more turn. So, leadership often is, is somewhat thought of in a vertical sense, but your notion of having a coach is somewhat of a horizontal sense a coach that's kind of on the side of you, uh, helping you out and, and pointing out blind spots and seeing a new pathway forward. I'd like to hear from you who in your past was a peer leader of yours? As you look at your past and your coaching days, your playing days, who stood out that you looked up to? That was wearing the same uniform as you or was on that same coaching staff and, yeah. and why did they stand out
1: yeah oh gosh i mean i'd like to think i had several at least um you know i'd like to think i had several and and but yet i'm sure there were times i i browbeat them because I didn't want them bringing me bad news. You know, I didn't want to deal with something, you know, I think like, I didn't like dealing with travel. I didn't like dealing with scheduling. I didn't like dealing with certain things. So, you know, you could just 50% of communications, body language, right? So if somebody's coming to you, say, coach, I got a question about scheduling and I just make a face like that, you know, close my eyes and roll my, you know, roll my head to the side, you know, they're not going to want to come to me but I should then say, Hey, listen, why don't we schedule 30 minutes every Monday at eight o'clock to talk scheduling? Okay. And if there's an emergency that comes up, you can come to me between those dates. Okay. And then when he does come to me, I've got to fake it and say, Hey man, (laughs) thanks for bringing that to me. You know, I appreciate you doing it because I, I don't, You know, I don't like dealing with it, but it's necessary, right?
0: All right, Matt. It's been a great chat. Final question for you. What's the most interesting lesson you learned as you went through the journey to author this book?
1: Yeah, I think think the emotional intelligence part. When I went to work with an executive coach named Carol Weber at UVA after I got let go, um, she uh, had me do the Myers-Briggs assessment. And she gave me the results and said that I was an ENTJ. And I jokingly said, you know, I've been called a lot of four letter words before, but never an ENTJ. And, and so she explained what an ENTJ was and that only 2% of the population are ENTJs. So I immediately thought that like, you know what, I'm a badass, like I'm elite, like only 2% of the population are Yeah. And she looked at me, she knew what I was thinking. She looked at me, said, no, you don't get it. She said, that means 98% of the population don't think like you think. And that's when I had the, the aha moment. I think that's one. I think another was when I was taking a class on emotional intelligence at under a lady named Fran Johnson, who I work with. It's, it talked about in this book, Primal Leadership, The Art of Emotional Intelligence, it talked about leadership is a learned behavior. And that gave me hope that I could become a better leader because my leadership was questioned when I was forced to resign at North Carolina. It was publicly questioned in a press conference. So that those two things, I think understanding that not everyone thinks like I think, and that, you know, that, well, that's emotional intelligence and trying to get an understanding of, okay, you know, leading, leading through the heart, like I need to connect with the heart. I was a coach that valued the X's X's and the O's, the, the science of coaching more than the art of coaching. Like I was very good at X's and O's, scouting, instilling offenses and defenses, game planning, but I needed to be more in tune with the emotional side of it. And that had to do with the art of coaching. So leadership is an art but it can be learned.
0: Well, Matt, we really appreciate it to all of our listeners head on out in a couple of weeks and buy his new book rebound. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we wish you the best, Matt.
1: Thank you. They can find that on rebound-book.com or go to my website, coachmattdoherty.com.
2: Matt, thank you you so much. It was an honor.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Well, listeners, I hope you found Matt's insights to be interesting and you, too, enjoyed his takes on leadership. I, for one, have found many of his points to be especially timely. Just a thought, folks, before this episode wraps. Like so many athletes, I've been so fortunate and privileged to learn countless life lessons through my sporting days, from how to compete with integrity, how to win with class and lose with grace, the value of honorable teammates, the value of tough but fair coaching, worthy opponents that are relentless in nature, playing to win, what though the odds. And that after every match, you look your opponent in the eye, you shake their hand and you tell them good game. And you know, this applies to daily life and all that we do, both inside and outside the lines. And in closing, I have fought the good fight. I have finished this race and I have kept the faith. Trust me, I will run with endurance the new race that is set before me. Keep thriving, Be curious and stay on point, my friends.